Interrupting our usual program, we share a conversation from Pikta Meets, a film series where Pikta experts meet innovators whose work is transforming our world. This episode discusses how is cloud computing changing how businesses are run? Joining us are Amir Orad, serial CEO, entrepreneur, and cyber leader, and now CEO of CSENS, and Christopher Saylern, financial analyst from Pikta Wealth Management. To view this episode in video format, head over to group.pikte slash Meets or follow the link in the episode description. Welcome, Mir. Thank you very much for taking the time to see us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, I wanted to lead this by basically starting with the cloud. I mean, why is the cloud so important? I mean, after all, companies have been spending $2 trillion roughly every year on IT for quite some time. It moves up a little bit, and the last five or 10 years, suddenly the cloud is a big thing. What is it, and how, how should we care? How should we be interested? Uh, it's a great question, and I love the fact you started by saying I have 20 years of experience in the cloud. In my first startup 20 years ago, we actually did not call it the cloud. So, <laughs> uh, But it was the beginning of software as a service, hosting, and cloud technology. And the reason it's so important is that up until this new way of doing things, for any company from uh, a very large company like Walmart to a tiny pizza shop down the corner, if they want to use technology, they have to buy a big machine, put it in the basement, then buy some software, stick it into that machine, operate it, change it every few years, and hope it works. That was more or less how it happens which created an unfair advantage to the very large companies because they have big basements with many machines and many people that know how to operate them. And it resulted in a fast but relatively slow to today innovation because when you want to change technology, you have to go physically to your basement, put in something new, hope it works, and so on and so on. What the cloud is, is this virtual thing. It's actually quite physical where Amazon... Google, Microsoft, and others provide you those machines in a central location with technology deployed already on your behalf in that location with other people operating that technology, which provides you much faster ability to deploy technology, actually shrinks the barrier, reduces the barrier between big and small companies because now the pizza shop can get access to the same trillion dollar data center as Walmart can in that cloud. It allows much faster innovation because you can replace and update the technology all the time. And what it does is actually makes startups creation and new technology creation very, very easy because you don't have to start from scratch. You stand on the shoulders of giants and you leverage all the technology and investments done already in the cloud. And as we'll hear today, there's one maybe unexpected advantage, and that is data. Back in the day when every company has its own little silo of technology in the basement, the ability to aggregate data in large volume and across companies was really, really challenging. But today, data can grow in the cloud it's much easier, and you can start seeing patterns across companies if you choose to share it. Hence, data, AI, analytics, machine learning, all of those buzzwords become much more relevant and accessible. That's the cloud, and that's the impact it has to all of us. And maybe before we continue, think about one thing. Without the cloud, with COVID, without the cloud, 
how would our life look like? Because we would not have access to easy Zoom technology in the cloud. Everyone can just use it and it goes up and down as needed. I would not be able to do a doctor visit over the web when the doctor is at home, the server is in another location, the machinery they use is another. So many things we take for granted. We will not be able to sit home and watch Netflix because we would not have the cloud. We'd need CDs and try and deliver CDs during the plague. Everything we take for granted, a lot of it would have not existed without the cloud technology. Thinking specifically, I mean, I've heard you mention many times the quantity of data that we create right now is borderline obscene, and we need a way of dealing with this. Can you describe to us a bit how, how all of a sudden you're able to tap into all these data sources and extract and make sense of this data? Analytics and using data to make decisions is not new. Actually, in the Bible, you already have surveys of people. You find evidence of taxation with numbers and stats going back, you know, 3,000 years written on tablets. What is changing is, A, the amount of data you accumulate. Even before the cloud, the cloud is accelerating it dramatically. But the amount of data you accumulate and the ability to store it somewhere. What is changing is the diverse set of sources you can now tap into. And I'll give an example in a minute. What is changing is the access to sophisticated algorithms that can look at the data. The cloud is like a big repository of all human algorithms available versus the ones you have in your basement. And again, the pace of innovation. Let's take the simplest example we all use as humans, photos. So I have this amazing device called the mobile phone. Some of you may have it. And this amazing device is capturing endless pictures, more than I ever thought I can take, uh, to the point there's more than I can put on my device. But instead of going to my computer and doing all of these manual processes, they magically appear in some cloud location and get stored forever in that location. Not only that, this magical device also collects GPS information, which is attached to the picture. And now I know the picture and the location. And additional stats, not on my device. For example, the weather in that location at that day is in some other cloud repository. So now, and you can add endless data points, uh, the, the, how the stock market did in that day and whatever you want. Now, I don't know if you are using Amazon Photos or Google Photos, all of those services. I can literally run AI on my pictures and I can Google pictures of my kids in a rainy day in New York, one point in time. And the cloud is accessing all its algorithms, visual recognition, pattern matching, weather data and my data and so on, and gives me the best picture. That's a simple but extreme example of things that were not doable or very expensive to do and now cost an hour free or cost me a dime and I can access them. And so can the person right now in Africa living on a few dollars a day. That's how low the cost became and how accessible things are. That's obviously the simplest example. We can take it to the other extreme. Health data during COVID, the first genetic sampling of the uh, of the virus was shared between endless scientists in the cloud electronically in the first day. It was uh, uh, sequenced. And each one separately in their own cloud repository started to work and share information 
again, cloud-enabled, and access different algorithms available in the cloud from uh, very advanced AIs to others. So that's where data is becoming richer and algorithms become more accessible, and it's all becoming more diverse. And the companies are taking advantage of it already. And I believe, and I'm betting my company on it, many more will, because if you don't take advantage of it, you'll be out of touch and, and lose your edge very, very quickly. The example you brought about photographs is a very good one, because I've got thousands of photographs, tons of them in the cloud, and I have got no idea how to find them. Or if I even, I mean, your example, I'm using AI to find all the kids on a rainy day, that works. But sometimes if I don't know if it's my kids or my kids with their friends, and I realize that the sheer quantity is the obstacle. And oftentimes I'm starting to understand that understanding this data, do you structure it? Can you address it unstructured? How do you go about essentially what is a new paradigm here? Because it used to be that the data used to be structured in silos, whether it's an Oracle database or an ERP system or a phone or an email client. I remember when before Gmail, there was Eudora. And if you didn't have your computer, you didn't have email. Yeah. All of a sudden, when you put stuff on Gmail, the number of emails multiply and you, I can't find emails anymore. Yeah. How do you go about sort of sorting the stuff out? So the best way I suggest you think about it, the framework I would use is you have raw data that is then translated into information. Information becomes insights and insights become actions. So raw data, information, insights, and actions. And I'll give an example, a real example that happens to all of us. We're not even aware of that technology. When you read an online book on your Kindle or phone, what have you, the raw information is how many seconds you spend on every page. Right, So Chris spent 15 seconds on page 7. And when you did it, by the way, and so on. That's the raw data. The information coming out of it is statistics. Out of 10,000 people, 42% read the first chapter in 5 minutes, but 20% spent 3 weeks reading it. And people that like horror movies skipped it altogether. Those are like information points. And by the way, I'm giving you a real example. That's literally what's happening with the online books today. That's turned into insights. Chapter five is where your book is failing because only half the people continue should rewrite your book. Real example. Books today are changing based on real feedback from the audience versus in the past you write a book, you ship it, and maybe in five years you'll find out what people liked and write the next edition. So the insight is chapter five, or starting chapter 10, only people that like whole movies continue reading it. Maybe you want to market it to whole movies uh, audiences. And then people take actions. They'll change the book, market it differently, etc. That raw data information, insights to actions, is how you should think about the data economy or the data universe. And the example I gave is a real example. There's a similar one on Netflix. When you watch a movie, you can literally tell the producers of the movie, where people turn it off or don't like a scene and they can cut it in the future or change the ads they show, etc. We see it a lot in healthcare these days, similar type of uh, raw data to information, to insights, to actions, in logistics, with endless examples, but it's the same thing. And if you're a business person, think right now, 
what raw data you sit on because you probably sit on a gold mine untapped. You probably don't have as much information as you should get from it. You probably have even less insights and you take very little actions. All of those are opportunities for improvement. All of them. No, no, absolutely. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, if I think, you know, we're a bank here. We have tons of information about some of the most, you know, intimate things that happen in people's lives. Um, and there's metadata around that. I mean, but that brings me on to an interesting point. It's about governance. Because you mentioned the point, you know, Chris takes 15 seconds to read a, a page on the Kindle. That's metadata about me that belongs in theory to Amazon. And that metadata has a life and it may get used to construct a profile on me, which might get sold off to an advertiser and so forth. How should we think about governance on here? And how do we think about security? I mean, security is, is the next step we want to go with this, but yeah. how do we think about just governance and privacy in an environment where a lot of the data is actually metadata, uh, data about data, and, and there's almost an endless amount of it starting to build up? It's a really, really important point. And actually at SciSense, when we built the company, today we have more than 2,000 clients using our analytics. We made it a point to allow customers to run our technology without giving us any data because you do need, for privacy and security and governance reasons, the ability to own it, lock it, and not give it to anyone. So we made our technology work that way. Now, to answer your question, it's a really interesting uh, reality we're in. You and I, I assume, use a lot of online services that are very cheap all the way to free. We pay with our data. We pay with people knowing what we do. Yes. And uh, it's a trade-off. If you want to get free access to the world's combined information on Google at no cost, you literally have to take a ship to the Library of Alexandria 2,000 years ago to get access to 0.1% of it, uh, and now anyone can do it at no cost. You pay with a price. You There's a pattern of your activities and so on. And most people do that trade-off willingly. There's actually research you do stop someone in the corner of a street and you ask them, I'll give you $5, will you tell me your birth date, where you live, your age, you know, and so on. People do that. Knowingly, on the web, it's, it's subconscious sometimes. People do it knowingly. But it is a trade-off. We have to be very clear about that reality. It is a trade-off. And unfortunately, some people don't even appreciate that this trade-off exists, that it exists every day. If you're very conscious, you can limit a lot of that. Today with GDPR and other regulations, you can, there are better techniques to limit what people know about you, but the vast, vast majority don't care enough or don't know enough to use those techniques. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting point you bring up there because it's, uh, this metadata expresses a lot about you and it's there permanently and, and forever. Uh, and surely there is a point at which you know you're doing a trade-off. Now, I've been having free email for the last 15 years because I've been consenting to Google, reading my emails and giving me ad targeted advertising. And that's fine. But then if you take it one step further and look at, for example, Robinhood, who's giving free financial services in exchange. I mean, essentially, I'd hate to say this, but the Robinhood users are the product. They're not the client. Uh, and there you're, you're going a bit further into sort of into people's cause. You, know, you can extrapolate this into how about free medical uh, services in exchange for monetizing that data. At some point, you know, where, where does uh, when do you, when is, when does politics kick in, and where where should you stop? Where does morality stop you? I mean, how do you, how do you think about this? Because you you extrapolate this very far. 
I'm thinking about it a lot. And my conclusion is, at the end of the day, my kids' generation will benefit from the data being more available than before because their healthcare quality is better, the medical accuracy is better, the research is faster thanks to some sharing, anonymized, but still there's always a risk, of data. School learning will be more accurate and can help my kids with the specific issues they have versus the generic issue of the average student at school by having some intrusive but specific data about how they do at school. So there are real benefits to humanity. I know it's a big world, but I truly believe it. There are real trade-offs. Look, let's talk about something more basic. Anyone living in London, is their picture is taken dozens of times every day as they walk the streets. You know everything about you. I can tell you your mood from the picture. There's actually now research that people can take your tell your sexual orientation with decent accuracy based on a picture of you. There's a research this week that an X-ray, an X-ray of a person can tell uh, their color, you know, black or white, and, and background based on an X-ray of a person, which they don't even know how the AI is doing it. So it's more intrusive and, and happening all the time around us. There are real benefits. There are real drawbacks. I told my kids, any picture you'll ever put online, every text in every app will be used one day against you potentially. The only good news, your entire generation is already screwed in a way, so you won't be any worse than your friend next door. That's the only, the only uh, advantage here. No, I mean I have I have this I have the same pretty much the same advice to my kids because they have, you know I have, I feel a certain boundary as to how how this goes. A lot of colleagues my age do. My children don't have any of those boundaries. I went to a presentation once where the presenter um, asked the room how they thought a room full of young kids how they thought light bulbs were switched on and off from the switch, and a lot of people thought it was Wi-Fi. You know, young kids. Didn't have a connection that you could be an actual physical wire going through a wall up the light bulb and delivering 220 volts. And I think that I'm very conscious that it's it's very different. But at the same time, and if you start extrapolating the last 10 years, the explosion of data, how we deal with it, which brings me on to the next question: How do we secure it? How do we keep this private? Because I'm conscious, even if I do with GDPR and all the privacy laws that are coming, will eventually come at some point. I'm completely conscious that I, there's a lot of data about me that I don't control. Pictures of me taken by other people uploaded to Facebook on their privacy settings are yep. pictures of me and run facial recognition. We'll know I'm there a specific time. As you said, that the weather was like this and I was dressed like this. And therefore, I might like and so forth. So even if I want to prevent, I can't seem to. And do you think at some point there is a backlash here? And how, how do you deal with this? And do you think we're going to get back to really bad advertising to, to deal with the privacy issues that come around with this? So I'll tell you what I am worried about and what I am actively investing energy to avoid. And that is shaping my opinion of the world using data against me. That I am worried about. And I'll tell you what I do about it. First, what do I mean by that? If you're on Facebook or Twitter or even Google News to a degree, they personalize and over-personalize the news to what you want to see and hear. That creates on the less dangerous edge of the spectrum, it creates echo chambers, 
and groupthinks and reduces diversity. That's on the less dangerous edge of the spectrum, all the way to manipulation, implicit or explicit, of your views of the world you live in. I spend a lot of energy, not for some, I don't have Facebook on my, my, my phone for that reason. When I go to Google News, you can choose to read personalized news or just generic news. I read multiple news sources, all intentional, so I can pick my view of life and not an algorithm picking it for me, which I find very dangerous. And I'm also proud of having a free will, and I like to keep it that way. So that's the one area, more than privacy, more than a picture of me, you know, in some uh, uh, some weird situation. That actually is the one thing I'm more troubled with, and I spend energy actively to minimize. And do you think this is, I mean, I, I 100% agree with this. And but do you think this is something that applies? I mean, we discussed about this in the consumer world, in the world of Facebook and Google using this to drive advertising revenue models. Do you think this applies in the corporate world as well, where, you know, essentially companies like Palantir or, you know, where all of a sudden data gets used? I mean, I've heard many times about telecom infrastructure companies selling gear to less than desirable regimes used for less than desirable reasons. You know, do you think this is something that also applies the governance side and the corporate side? I believe the vast, vast, vast majority of corporates, because they provide specific services, well, you are the customer and not the product, unlike the free services we spoke about. Data used for directly improving the quality of service and quality of life, you get as a result. If I get better distribution of goods, lower cost food, better education, better healthcare, less traffic in the streets, and I can give you endless examples of data impacting your life, that's a good thing. I'm the customer. My data is used to provide me a better service I chose to receive and pay for. And that's a good thing. When I'm the product and I consume a free service, different story. So I'm actually very happy to see what most companies do using data to provide me a good service. Selling my information to get another 1% EBITDA should be outlawed. Literally outlawed. There's no reason. No reason. But do you think the temptation is there for, for that to happen? Some companies, you know, do basic things there. I think it's wrong. I think they're actually not reading the market. I think public pressure will reduce it over time. And regulators, um, you know, you, I just bought a, a new phone. And I won't say who's the carrier, but it said in the page 200 on the online contract, if you don't click here, we can use your behaviors using the phone to provide advertising. Really? Come on. For another 1% EBITDA, you're, you're going to do that? Uh, and you see Apple already realizing it. And now they're selling the iPhone as a privacy-oriented uh, device. People are realizing there's value. People want to be secured and protected. Funny, I've got, got one last question. This is a, a sort of very broad one. And, I, you know, we're talking about the cloud. Essentially, we're talking about what used to be a product sale for hardware and software, uh, transforming into a service sale. Uh, and implicitly somewhere you're saying that the assets are no longer owned by the clients themselves who are using the product slash service. They're actually owned by the service provider himself. And if you start going down that route somewhere along the line, if you put open source in there, does that mean you're going to start devaluing the, the value of private uh, intellectual property and software and bring it down to the same level as open source? 
business and how, how do you see this because ultimately i think you know if you're if you're salesforce or if you're aws you have your you own you own all this intellectual property and somewhere it sits on a balance sheet shouldn't have to be depreciated or revalued every now and then nobody ever talks about this but someone on the line if that switch becomes big enough it surely it has an economic impact as well and the value of the license itself is not the same true but you know if you drink coca-cola you can copy today the ingredients enough and yet their brand and IP is still very rich or you know trade secrets if you like etc I believe open source is a really important initiative and momentum around us and it produces barriers for innovation and cost but at the same time the data the expertise the know-how is important especially in scale, does not exist in the open source. I'm not worried about it. Uh, I think, you know, actually there's companies like MongoDB, their product is free, open source, and yet billions of dollars of value by offering it as a service and the innovation around it and the support, et cetera. So there's room for both. I'm not worried about that. That's not in my top 100 things to lose sleep on. What I think about every day when I talk to customers is, like the internet, if you're a business and you don't think today how to take advantage of your data assets and turn them into competitive advantage and providing better service to your customers, leveraging the cloud, the internet, et cetera, you will wake up one moment and it will be too late. Too late. You build a business for 200 years and you find one day that it doesn't exist. So... My advice and what I'm much more excited about or worried about is people missing the train or the boat of what's happening around us. Again, yes. no company is not using the internet anymore. They died. I couldn't agree more. Uh, on those very wise words, thank you so much. For this. Um, yeah, it was a pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure to have you around and to answer all these questions, to have this discussion. It was a real treat for me. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chris. This podcast starred Amir Arad, and the interviewer was Christoph Seilern. It was brought to you by the Pikta Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the HowTo Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers for this episode were me, Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, Clara Bertrand, and Vasily Christodoulou. Visit group.pikta slash piktameets to watch the film version of this episode, And hear from more thought leaders, including impact investor Sir Ronald Cohen and the World Economic Forum's Alice Charles. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.